You can go ahead and turn to John 15, verse 18 to 25 is our focus. I'm going to back up and read verse 17 just to sort of get us the context. And as we prepare to hear the word, pray also for our brother Jason Welm. He is preaching at our sister church over in uh, Illinois, Heritage of Grace. And so ask the Lord's help for him as well. Lord, you're the one who's called us out of darkness into light. You've called us out of sin into salvation. You've called us out of the blackness of our own corruption into the brightness of Christ and His purity and His glory. All of this is from You. None of it starts with us, is empowered by our flesh, not a bit, but by the grace of Your Spirit who takes hold of us, gives us life, and then leads us through this life to the praise of Your glory. So give us Your help. Uh, to hear Your Word with profit, to understand it, especially on a difficult topic. And Lord, in a way that that we're able to live in bold confidence no matter what's going on in the world around us. Pray also for Jason as he brings the Word uh, to the saints at Heritage. And may Christ receive His glory. Amen. So John 15, I'm reading from verse 17. It says, Jesus speaking, says, These things I command you, that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now... They have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So ends the reading of God's Word. John chapter 15 is in Jesus' farewell to His disciples, preparing them for what it's going to mean to live out their lives uh, in His physical absence. And so here, thinking back to the message that we heard two weeks ago from this passage, we're reminded that we indeed must be a people of love. Jesus says in verse 12, This is My commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And as we just read in verse 17, These things I command you so that you will love one another. And so we must be a people of love as we follow Christ. And yet, paradoxically, we will also face the world's hate as we follow Christ. And you must understand this. This world and its sin is so upside down in its thinking and feeling and priorities that its automatic response to God's pure love and the warm embrace of Christ is the stiff arm of hate and rejection. And knowing that, Jesus says, is essential to being prepared 
to face the hostilities that are an inevitable part of life in this world. But he's telling you this not to make you paranoid, you know, always looking over your shoulder in fear of what might happen, but to prepare you to live all the more in dependence upon Him as you keep walking in His love. And so with that in mind, let's look at this difficult passage. And the first thing we need to do is to simply face the truth that this world will hate you for belonging to Christ. Verse 18 and 19 again, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If the world hates you, he says. Now, he's not calling that into question. He's not saying, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Uh, in the Greek language, the way you ask a question indicates whether or not you believe the statement you're making is true or not. And the way Jesus phrases this question indicates very clearly it is a true statement. Not, maybe they will, maybe they won't hate you, but absolutely they do. We could even translate this as, if the world hates you, and they do, or since it's true that the world hates you, know these things. And then just in case we didn't quite pick up on that, verse 19 at the end makes it clear. Therefore, the world hates you. The world. The world. What does he mean by the world? I mean, surely he can't mean each and every person on the planet. You may have a very good relationship with old Fred down the street. Or, or Bob at work. Or Nancy at the grocery store. And they're not believers, but you have a wonderful, warm relationship with them, right? They're not, they're not these terrible people out trying to, de to destroy you and harm you. They would, in fact, give you the shirt off their back. No, no, what he means is this present world system of sin and rebellion against God. The, the, the world of man set over against the Word of God. That's what he means. Ever since the fall of Adam, mankind has lived overall in hostile opposition to God. It was true of your heart. It is true of their hearts. And, and in a world like this where every person seeks to be their own little God, living by their own little rules, there will be hostility against the God who actually makes the rules and does rule. And not only against Him, but also against any of those who are closely associated with Him. And so Jesus says, you must know this. Listen to him again in verse 18. If the world hates you, and it does, know, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. Know this, he says. Know, first of all, that the animosity against Christ is real, but that it's nothing new. You know, we tend to look at the hostility that we see in our culture today as if it were a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's as old as Satan slithering up next to Eve in the garden and saying, did God really say? Romans 8.7 in fact says that the mind that is set on the flesh, and that is the mind of man apart from the grace of God in salvation, the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind intent on living out its own proclivities, that mind is hostile to God, doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot do so. And that hostility is built into man's heart in his rebellion against God and it's not going away anytime soon. 
It's the first thing. It's not new. Second, this hostility we're talking about isn't really about you. It's about Christ. In other words, don't take it personally. I like that scene from one of the Avenger movies about Captain America. They try to beat him up and he, of course, knocks them all out. And uh, the last guy says, well, it's nothing personal, Cap. He says, it feels personal. (laughs) And it often does, but it really isn't personal. Again, verse 18, if the world hates you, and it does, well, know that it hated me before it hated you. It hates Christ. Now, why do they hate Christ? I mean... Why would they hate Jesus? Well, it's because of who He is. And when the veil is pulled back and they understand what He represents, hatred is the natural reaction. I mean, you understand, hopefully, you understand that the one thing every person on this planet wants to believe about themselves is in their own essential goodness. Their own essential rightness. We all want to be able to stand in front of the mirror and say, you know, I'm pretty darn awesome. My choices are right and you should respect them. My feelings are truth and you should acknowledge them. My desires are good and I should be able to satisfy them any way I choose. See, that's the conceit. That's what they want to believe and you did too before Christ. But the very presence of Jesus rebukes that and unmasks it for the fantasy that it is. Understand this about Jesus. His purity shines the light of truth into the depths of our impurity. His spotless righteousness reveals the wretched blackness of our unrighteousness. John 1 verse 5 says, The light, speaking of Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not... Well, this word could mean overcome, resist, uh, successfully resisted, overpowered. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a picture of war. The light shines and the darkness says, No! And the fact that He came to die for sins as the Gospel proclaims is a reminder to every person that they in themselves are sinners. That they, because of their sin, deserve hell and death. And that is the last thing any one of us wants to face. It is offensive. Understand, Jesus' purity is an offense to man's pride. And so third, if you stand with Jesus in that truth, you will be hated by the world that refuses the truth. Verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why does it hate you? Well, because you belong to Christ. Of course, getting out of the world here doesn't mean living in a commune somewhere away from the world. We're called to be in the world. We're called to declare the gospel. But it means that you are not swept up in its moment. You are not captivated by its passions. You are not ruled by its ruler because you are ruled instead by Christ. And so because you belong to Christ, and because you insist on the truth of Christ, oh, there's going to be trouble. John 17, 14, later on in the prayer of Jesus, he will say to the Father, I've given them your word, and the word has I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So if you belong to this world, if, if this was your home, if this was your natural environment, and by the way, Christian, understand that it's not. 
if you belong to the world, well, belonging to the world means that you march according to its drumbeat, that you accept its rules as right, that you affirm its assumptions as righteous, that you're ready to put on the pride pin and march in its parade celebrating rebellion. And if that was true of you, oh, the world would love you. They'd pat you on the back. They'd say, well done, sir. And you understand that is what's being demanded of you. Come join us. Right? Come join the parade. Come affirm that we're right and you know God and that ancient book are wrong. Come join us. Get on the right side of history over here with us and help us shout the news that sin is no more, repentance is not needed, and all is right with us. That is the thing you're being commanded to do. And sadly, many... I really do mean this in love. Many fuzzy-headed Christians, or at least those who proclaim to be Christians who don't think deeply about Scripture or perhaps haven't even read with understanding, are, are willing to do that very thing, to join the parade and to shout the slogans in order to be accepted. But again, what is Jesus telling us? Verse 19, Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You are not of the world. Christ says. Now hear that. You cannot affirm the world and its rebellion and belong to Christ at the same time. You cannot march in their parade and shout their slogans and at the same time believe that you really do belong to Him because the very act of coming to Him takes you out of this world and out of its, out of its reigning influence. In fact, the moment you turn from this world to embrace Christ by faith, the world considers you its enemy. Now, careful, I'm not saying you should act like the world's enemy. What did Jesus tell us to do with enemies? Matthew 5.44 is so very clear, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, serve them, care for them. And, and so, faithfulness to Christ demands, first of all, that we must love. Oh, you must love and serve those around you, especially those who hate you. But second, because of that love, you must remain firmly and fully committed to Christ whose saving truth they so desperately need. So that His truth in love is on your heart and His truth in love is on your lips. So that because you are committed to Christ's truth, well again, I'm going to say it to you, you're going to be hated by this world. I'm sorry that's the case. But it is the case. You remember Jesus warned us that there is a broad way that many will travel and it leads to destruction and a narrow way that leads to life and only a few find it, those few who are following in His train. And so dear Christian, dear Christian, old, young, whoever you are, you will either be captivated by Christ's love or you'll be courting this world's love, but you cannot have both. And we live in a day when you're going to have to embrace very clearly one or the other. Because you simply can't have two masters. It's always been that way, but it's become very apparent in this day. Al Mohler reminds us that we live in a day when every church, every Christian, every institution will be forced to declare where it stands on the great moral issues of our day, especially those regarding at this present moment the whole range of LGBTQ issues. I mean, I don't have to tell you this. You know, we're in the middle of so-called Pride Month. It's everywhere. 
Amy and I are going to Boston later this week. I'm sure that it's going to be shouted from the rooftops. And, and, and the point is, every one of us is expected not only to acknowledge, but to celebrate. Just this past week, several ball players who play for Tampa Bay found this out firsthand. Uh, the Tampa Bay Times reported that for Pride Day, the team's uniforms were to be decked out with rainbows and other pro-LGBT uh, symbols to show their support for the local community. But some players opted out and instead chose to stick to their regular uniforms. Five of those players, led by Jason Adams, he may be one of my new heroes, um, led by Jason Adams, issued a statement to explain why they did this. He made it very clear in his statement that they gladly welcome and love all fans. All fans are welcome to come cheer at the ballpark. But that they could not wear things on their body that would promote or endorse a lifestyle that they believed was contrary to the teaching of Christ. Well, you can imagine the response from many quarters has been quite hostile. They made it very clear it's not enough for them to welcome all fans to the game. No, they are expected to publicly declare their support for the sexuality of all fans at the game. That's the demand. Tolerance is not enough. Saying we're glad you're here to watch the game is not enough. No, you must be made to celebrate. One critic writing in the New York Times even declared that what they were saying is just a cover-up for their hatred. He said that it's a mark against them and their so-called faith and it simply shouldn't be allowed today. They should be forced to participate or lose their jobs. They must be made, in other words, to celebrate. And, and that's where we are, it seems, in this present culture. In a world committed to celebrating sin, a sinless man will not be tolerated. That's why they hate Jesus. In a world committed to celebrating sin, those who refuse to celebrate will not be tolerated. This is why they will hate you. But your response cannot be to hate back. When they slander you, you cannot slander in return. In fact, you must return love to their slander. You must speak the truth to them and proclaim Christ to them no matter what the cost may be. You and I must remain beacons of His light in the darkness so that Christ may be seen. Amen. Which brings us to the next thing then, to understand that this world then, this world and its rebellion, will treat you the same way it treated Christ. Now that's a fact to be faced, but it's also a joy to be embraced. Verse 20 and 21. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. One of the motives Jesus has here in telling us this is to remove the surprise factor. 1 John 3.13, John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Are you surprised? You really shouldn't be. So Jesus says, remember what I told you. He's, he's talking about something He said to them in the upper room in John 13, 16, when He said even there, a servant is not greater than, a, than his master. Meaning what? Meaning they're going to treat you, the servant, in the same way they treated him, your master. Wait, 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 wait. Did you... 
Did you think that you deserve better treatment than Jesus? They crucified Him. But you thought they'd be nice to you? Did you imagine somehow that you're going to be better at this than Jesus was? You're going to be more loving and more kind than Jesus was. So they don't like you. That's a bit delusional, don't you think? And yet I've lived there far too often. There's a reason we're called Christians in the book of Acts. What does that word mean? What does Christians mean? Little Christs. Little Christs. And everywhere we go, we bear His name. It's a, it's a reminder to us that our lives should reflect Him in every respect. When, when people see us, they should think about Jesus. They, that they, should, they should see something of Him in us. And that's, that's great. That's wonderful. You should strive for that every single day and delight whenever you see it being true. But there is a cost. In a culture where Christ is hated for His purity we who stand with Him will be hated as well. That's what He tells us here in verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. So how did they treat Jesus? Did they embrace Him warmly? Did the Pharisees throw parties? Did they slap Him on the back and say, you're just one of the boys? Well, actually, Mark... 1565 says they received him with slaps in the face. Isaiah 53 verse 3 speaks with the voice of property, uh, property, um, speaks with the voice of prophecy. Get that one right. Says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You know the story. Well, if that's what they did to Him in His perfect love and grace, if that's what they did to the Lord of glory, what will they do to those who love and reflect His glory? Of course, Jesus told us plainly. You know, Usually when I prepare a sermon, I, I, I do what I call a, 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 a verse list. I just start collecting verses on the same topic and I just had to quit this week because it was running onto multiple pages. This is a fairly robust theme in the New Testament. Luke 21.12 says, They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake, and this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Paul likewise says in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And at the same time, don't fear. Realize that God uses this for His glory. Look at the end of verse 20. Right after He says, if they persecuted Me, they'll persecute you. He says, and if they kept My Word, they will also keep your Word. Did they keep His Word? Well, Well, most didn't, but don't overlook. Some did. And some will believe our word as we're faithful to proclaim Christ in the midst of whatever suffering Christ chooses to let us experience. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying in Luke 21.13. They, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And so big picture, think about the history of the church. The greatest periods of gospel advance have been when? 
By and large, it has not been when the church was at ease and prosperous and popular with the culture. It has been those times of trouble and opposition where Christians were pressed to stand fast at great cost. It's all the lies of, 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 of the old-style liberal Christianity that said if we can just blend in with the culture well enough and, and, and bang their drum and, and, and proclaim their message and show them how you know, the, 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 this gospel thing is just a little bit better and a little spin, a little, little, little sugar on top for them, and those churches collapse and fall apart because they're not giving a gospel that saves from the mess. They're, they're giving an echo chamber of the culture which does no good for anybody. And evangelicals are now following that in a lot of ways. You know the big accusation was against the early Christians in the Roman Empire? The big accusation that got them thrown to lions and stuff like that? The big accusation? They were publicly denounced repeatedly as haters. Specifically, they were called haters of mankind. Much like today. You know why? Because the thinking of the empire went something like this. Everybody needs to come together and participate in the celebration of the pagan gods in order to assure the good and prosperity of our communities and the empire. If we don't all come together and offer to Zeus these offerings, Zeus won't bless us, neither will the other gods. So everyone needs to join together to celebrate the offering because if we don't all celebrate, Zeus will know. And it won't go very well for us. This will unify us. But of course the Christians couldn't do it. They couldn't celebrate Zeus because that would be a turning away from Christ. And so they were told, no, no, what's wrong with you people? You must really hate us. You're bringing harm to our community. All we ask is that you just fit in. All we ask is you join our celebration, offer this little sacrifice. What's so big a deal about that? Surely you can give us that. And of course they couldn't. Not and be faithful to Christ. And so they were persecuted, just like Christ. The more you look like Jesus to a hate-filled world, the more you will be treated like Jesus by that world. But, but again, be careful. Please hear me. That's not an excuse to run around being a jerk. You don't invite persecution because you're an obnoxious knucklehead who makes a nuisance of yourself by getting in people's faces and, 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 and just being blunt, uh, blunt. Blunt can be good, but being, you know what I mean, obnoxious. you got a picture in your mind of somebody probably. <laughs> Peter warned about this. 1 Peter 4, 14-16. He said, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of God and of glory rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God because of that name. Don't go looking for persecution. Don't seek it out. Don't fear it. Just be faithful to Christ and let come what may. Because second, when persecution does come, oh, here's the goodie, rejoice! Oh, I know that sounds crazy. But listen to verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of My name because they don't know Him who sent Me. They'll do this to you because of Me, He says, and so let it be about Me. On account of My name. So let it be about My name because they see Me in you. And that's wonderful. You see, I know this is hard to get our minds around, but it really is wonderful. 
When you are persecuted, canceled, hated, rejected, oppressed because of Christ's name, there is joy in that. Acts chapter 5.41 is the disciples left the Sanhedrin after being threatened and beaten. It says that they left with joy because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name. 1 Peter 4 again says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This isn't strange. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. When we suffer for Christ's name, because we're walking with Him in righteousness, because we belong to Him, we find ourselves thrust into a place of blessing that cannot be accessed any other way. Do you understand that? I mean, Jesus said this very clearly in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of My name. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, when it happens, you're in good company. You're in good company. And you know, so perhaps a door of access into blessings in the Christian life that most of us have never known in, in a culture that, that, that either ignores or even, even parrots Christian truth, maybe we're having a door open to us for blessing that otherwise we could never ever know. When we suffer in Christ's name because we belong to Christ, we find ourselves in a place of blessing that we couldn't get any other way. Church, we need a really robust theology of righteous suffering. To understand that those who suffer for Christ in any way, and you haven't yet, will be blessed. Will be blessed, first of all, because we'll learn to prioritize the things of the kingdom over the things on earth. Luke 6, 22-23, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. We're prioritizing heaven over earth. Uh, We're prioritizing well done, good and faithful servant over attaboy. You're on our side. You'll be blessed because you'll know the help and presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Peter 4.14 again, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of God and of glory rests on you. You'll be blessed to go deeper into the things of God as you're forced to draw nearer and nearer to Christ. Philippians 1.29 For this has been granted to you. This has been gifted to you. This has been given to you by grace for the sake of Christ that not only should you believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. I could go on, of course. But there are just things that we have to keep in mind in this present moment. I'll give you three and we'll move to the last point. First, Keep in mind, if you belong to Christ, persecution will come not because you are being unfaithful, but when you're being faithful. Two, don't go looking for persecution. Let it come to you. You just walk with Him day by day. Third, don't fear persecution. Because when it comes, Christ is all over it. His hand brought this. His sovereignty overrules this. And He will use it for His glory and your ultimate good. Spend some time in 1 Peter 4 this afternoon. 
If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God for that name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely safe, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Go out and do some good in Jesus' name. And let Him worry about the results. Brings us to the last thing here, and I I want to make sure we get this. We must understand then that the world we're living in, this world that hates Christ, that this world system that is set against His Word is sinking under His judgment because of that rejection. In other words, they are the losing team. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates Me hates My Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both Me and My Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated Me without cause. Oh, dear friend, if you lash your life to the deck of this world, you're on a ship that has already hit the reef and is already going down. The words Jesus uses here to describe this culture is He describes a culture that's under judgment. He says in verse 22, if, if I hadn't come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Meaning, by the way, this sin, this sin of rejecting Me. He's not saying they would be sinless with no need of salvation if, if Christ hadn't come. He, he means that they would not be guilty of the added sin of rejecting God's Messiah. The very Messiah the Jews had been looking for and waiting for and praying would come. I mean, that's the context here. He's speaking to these Jews in their unbelief and especially the religious leaders because now they have seen Jesus. Now they have heard Him speak the Gospel to them. Now they have witnessed the power of His miracles. Before that happened, they might have been able to say, well, we didn't know who the Messiah would be. We didn't realize that this is how God is going to save. We didn't quite put it together. But, 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 but now they can't say that because Jesus has come. The Gospel has been proclaimed. See, here's the principle. The eye that has seen something of Christ, the ear that has heard His Word, is guilty beyond excuse. Jesus says in verse 24, if I hadn't come and done the things that no one else could do, they wouldn't have this guilt. Do you know that there's no one else like Jesus? That there's no one like Him? There's no one even close? There's no one who's done the things Jesus has done? I mean, think about it. Just in the Gospel of John, He changed water into wine. And really good wine at that. He commanded lame legs to walk. And the man got up and walked. He gave sight to blind eyes. He fed thousands with a sack lunch. And when he commanded dead Lazarus, come here, Lazarus got up alive and came. Who else can do that? And they saw it. Who else can lay down his life three days later, take it up? 
So that's what Jesus means here. In light of His words, in light of His actions, in light of His resurrection, there is no excuse for their unbelief. And the word excuse means no credible excuse, no pretense, not a hint. Those who see such sights and hear such words yet still refuse to believe stand condemned. Now that was true of the Jews in Jesus' day. It is true of us in our day. Think about it. We live in a world where the resurrection has happened. That's a fact of history that you cannot avoid. Christ came... Christ died, Christ rose again. And the world has never been the same since then. Christ's Word has gone out into the world, proclaimed and preached by by, by martyrs and missionaries. The good news has been proclaimed in your hearing. There is no excuse for unbelief in a world where Christ has risen. Oh, 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 yes, yes, it's true. There are people in our culture and across the world who, who haven't who haven't clearly seen what God has done, who haven't, who haven't fully grasped that, and that's why we must go and we must tell them. But, but here I'm talking about this culture we live in. We as a culture stand guilty before God. We as a culture are under His judgment because we have seen, we have heard, and by and large we have now rejected. We are a culture under judgment. What Paul wrote of the Roman Empire in Romans 1 is true of us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known of God, they've said, no thank you. And they've refused to see. Even the little light they've had, they've snuffed out. We are a people without excuse. Our culture as a whole is under the judgment described here in Romans 1. Read the rest of Romans 1 sometime this week. But but you see, it's also true of you personally. If you're in this room right now, or listening later by recording, you are without excuse. Because you have heard. If you're present this morning, you've seen Christ celebrated as Warren wonderfully led us. You've heard His Gospel Word. Some of you, many times. You know that He's risen. And yet you persist in your unbelief. You continue to cling to your sin. And what Jesus is saying is you are without excuse. Friend, what will you do? What will you do? Will you flee the wrath to come as you've been warned? This wrath that your sins are storing up and come to Christ for life and forgiveness as the only source? Or will you harden your heart still further? And once again, choose this world over Christ. And whether you like to think of it that way or not, it's exactly what it is. A choosing of this world over Christ. And you see, that's the issue. It's not just a matter of, I'm rejecting religion, I'm rejecting what my parents said, I'm rejecting you know this or that. It's a matter of rejecting Christ. And ultimately, if you're rejecting Christ, you're rejecting God. You look at the end of verse 21, he makes this very clear. He says, the reason they'll do these things is because they do not know Him who sent me. They don't know God. And if you're still rejecting Christ, you don't know God. The one fact of the universe that is most important to know, most vital to know, most urgent that you know, you do not know. Friend, a life without God is a life without hope. 
A life without Christ is a life that is turned against God. Because Christ Himself is the only way to God. And so if, if your life is cut off from Christ and the love only He can give from the Father, then you will find yourself falling into the grip of this world and its hate. That's Jesus' warning. Verse 23, Whoever hates Me hates My Father also. Don't say you love God if you don't also love Christ, for Christ is the very love of God manifested. To turn from Christ is to turn from God, and to turn from God is to turn to this world ruled by hate. Verse 24, if you... If I had not done among them the works that I, no one else did, and He has, so there's no, there's no excuse, then they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But we are. Because He says, now they have seen and hated both Me and My Father. They've seen and they've hated. They've seen and they've rejected. They've seen and they've refused. To see the truth of Christ and turn away is an act of despising the God who offers you your only hope. It is a despising of God and a despising of His grace. And it is in the end the one sin from which there is no recovery unless you turn and embrace Christ. You say, I don't like that. I don't like it in those black and white terms. I don't, I don't like you putting it that way. I, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Your Truth is truth regardless of your opinion about it. Truth is truth regardless of how it makes you feel. One of the problems with this world is no, we can't make anybody feel bad. But if you are bad, you need to feel bad. If you're guilty, you need to, you need to, you need to face that. Stop denying it. The reason the guilt keeps coming back up is because it's real and there's one answer to that guilt and it's Christ who died and rose again to take away your guilt and to give you His life. So the truth of God's Word tells us that the greatest lover this world has ever known came and He was hated. And He was hated for no good reason. <laughs> no reason at all. Isn't that what verse 25 says? We'll, we'll have to pick up here next week, but He's quoting... Psalm 35.19 and Psalm 69.4 and several other psalms because this is a theme. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. God's greatest expression of love was rejected and hated because His life was a contradiction to this world and what it wants to think of itself. And Jesus knew it would be this way. And so must you. When the light shines in the darkness, darkness hates it. So I'll close with this. This is John 3.19 spoken earlier in the Gospel. It says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, and that is the light that is turned against God, lived for self, hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But dear one, for there to be healing, for there to be salvation, they must be exposed. They must be brought into the light. And that light is Christ. And that light is His truth. So dear one, are you clinging to the darkness because you insist on your own way? Are you marching to the beat of this world's drum because you want its approval even as it heads into destruction? 
Or will you turn and bring this life of yours just the way it is to Christ and let His light shine into the dark corners, expose the sin and evil, and wash them away through His saving death and resurrection. And then follow Him. Follow Him. Follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world where the very word hate can probably get us canceled on Facebook. We live in a world where it's so upside down that to love someone enough to tell them the truth, you'll be branded as one who hates. We live in a world where people imagine that what love means is the truth is never spoken and no one is ever made to realize that the life that they've chosen for themselves, the life that they think they have no choice but to follow, is a cancer that's eating away at their souls. And they would rather continue with the cancer than be told that there is a healer. Lord Jesus, You have healed us because we were just in the same boat. You've brought us out of darkness into light. You've brought us out of the depths of sin into the glory of Your kingdom. Lord, help us to walk in that kingdom faithfully, boldly. Help us to declare that kingdom to others no matter what the cost. Help us not to fear, but to rejoice to be named among those chosen by grace, rescued from sin, and on our way to a glorious eternity with You. For it is in Christ's magnificent name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brother, come.